This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. For today's show, I want to start out by us thinking about bright reds, screaming yellows, brilliant blues, and gloriously intense greens. If you've placed those colors in your mind, now think of some tiny tropical frogs that use these colors as warning signs. They are signals to other animals that they might not want to take a bite out of them because, well, you might croak. I know, I know. Sorry, I couldn't pass up the pun. What is also interesting is these colors have been copied by other frogs that are actually quite tasty. But these frogs use the colors to keep predators away. They're what we call mimics. My guest today is Molly Cummings, professor from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Texas, Austin. She's been studying a particular type of poison dart frog, the strawberry poison frog, and has found out there is more to the story than just bright colors. She's also been working with a brightly colored beetle called a scarab beetle, and I've been told these beetles have a connection to the movie Avatar. So let's take a moment to learn about colorful poison frogs and beetles and the story they are telling us about one part of life. Welcome to the show, Molly, and thank you for visiting with me today. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Biology. I'm happy to be here. Okay, let's start by talking about your cute study subjects. <laughs> uh, I'm actually looking at them here, and they're amazing. But why don't you talk a little about this colorful, cool, and in this case, sometimes dangerous animal? Yes, well, they're very attractive, which is kind of unusual for something that's trying to tell other animals to stay away from it. When we see these colors, they're bright and beautiful, and we think, wow, how gorgeous want to grab them, but that's actually a bad idea. So if any of you go down to Costa Rica or Panama and see a brightly colored frog, do not grab it, and by all means, do not lick it, because that's exactly where they keep their poisons on their back. Oh. Yeah. So we were really interested by why this one species, species means groups of animals that actually can mate together and make more individuals, why they change their colors. Some islands have red backs, some islands have yellow, some have green, some have blue. And yet they're all considered the same species. And we wanted to understand why. Because when it comes to using colors to advertise, it doesn't make sense to change your advertisement signal. You know, when you're driving down the street and you see a McDonald's sign and you see that golden arch on the red background, you think McDonald's. Now, if McDonald's constantly changed colors, you wouldn't always associate those arches with McDonald's. And so that's the mystery we were trying to solve. So I'm looking at some pictures of your frogs, and there are actually three frogs here, brightly colored backs, I mean, really bright red, and not being a poison dart frog connoisseur, they all look the same to me. Ah, well, that's actually another frog. That's a series of three different species that live in Ecuador, okay? And this particular story is a very interesting story because we didn't understand why this non-toxic frog, this very juicy frog, was able to copy these two different types of nasty frogs. But when the frogs overlapped, they only copied one of them. And that didn't make sense to us because the one frog that it would copy in this zone of overlap where all the frogs were hanging out together was the frog that was the least toxic, so it was almost close to palatable. Um, tasty. Yeah, tasty, right. <laughs> and it was the least abundant, so it didn't make a lot of sense. So we ended up doing a behavior experiment where we got chickens involved, and we trained some chickens to learn to avoid these two different types of nasty frogs. 
And what we found is that when chickens learned on the less nasty frog, they only avoided that specific frog color. But when they learned on the more toxic or more nasty frog, they not only avoided that particular frog color, but they also avoided new colors of frogs. And that was really interesting to us, and it made us wonder whether or not this was a way where frogs could develop new colors and and warn predators and not get in trouble for it, not get tasted. So in this way, they weren't so specialized. So it wasn't saying only avoid red-backed frogs. It could be that you learn that, hey, if it's a bright color, avoid it altogether. Yes. It's amazing to me that they're all the same species, but they have developed to have different colors, and they're still the same species. So what's the story behind it? And when you say they've learned to change, this is over time, and we're talking a lot of time, right? Yes, we're talking thousands of years, which actually is a short period of time for evolution. These different islands where the different colors arise have only been in existence for 10,000s of years. But getting back to the question of why are there different colors, there's really two big sources of where we think the variation, the change in color can come from. It can be predators and it can be other frogs. And so let me take on the predators first. So the animals who eat the frogs can be a number of different types of animals. They could be birds, they could be snakes, they could be crabs, they could even be spiders. There are actually stories out there of big, nasty spiders eating small, nasty frogs. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And all of these different animals I mentioned have different types of eyes. And in their eyes, they have different cells that can see the world differently than you and I. So you and I can see the world in one way. We see these frogs as beautiful and red and yellow. But birds actually have more types of cells, and they see a broader part of the light spectrum than you and I see. And snakes and crabs see it differently even from these birds. So it's quite possible, and that's one of the things we try to study, is whether or not the different eyes of these different predators are driving the changes in color. You'd expect that from animals who use colors to warn the predators. But what is less expected is that the females, the girls in this species, can actually have some influence, some say in in the direction of the color. And so we've been asking the girl frogs whether or not they like the boy frogs who are brighter or a different color than their own local morph. And sure enough, the girls tend to prefer brighter frogs on all the different islands, regardless of what color their specific island is. How this relates to color is that brightness and color are kind of related. And so you can become brighter by simply bouncing off more photons on that part of the rainbow, or you can become brighter by bouncing off more photons across the rainbow. And so by bouncing off more photons, you might actually change your color from a deep dark red to an orange or to a yellow or to a green. And if the whole goal is just to be brighter, along the way you might change your color. These two processes I've been talking about have been referred to as natural selection. That's where they try to survive being eaten. And something called sexual selection, which is trying to be attractive to a mate. So we're finding that both of these processes might be producing the changes in color we're seeing between the islands. Right, and they can be at opposites in the sense that if you get really attractive and bright, which might be great for sexual selection, so the the girl frogs like the boy frogs more, but now that boy frog is much more noticeable. 
Exactly. And so is that a problem that now they get eaten more? So there's that trade-off going on. But because they're using this different type of light – so you you brought it up. So we see what's called visible light. And so it's this rainbow of colors. And on both sides, there's either UV, which is ultraviolet, and then there's infrared. And you also mentioned that, you know, snakes, a lot of reptiles are really good with infrared. Correct. And there are a lot of insects that are really amazing, and they can see in the UV. And so what we see and what they see are really different. So what are the frogs seeing then if they're not seeing the bright colors? Is it bright colors or is it ultra-bright colors? These frogs, because they're active by day, actually have a visual system somewhat similar to you and I. They have these three types of cone classes in our eyes, as do humans. Most humans do. And that's different from, let's say, birds who tend to have four cone classes and can go into the UV that you mentioned and can go further into the red than we can. So the frogs themselves, and we've done experiments to make sure that they can see the difference in the brightness as well as we've gone into the eye and evaluated whether or not they're likely to detect this brightness. And sure enough, they can. These day frogs can see it. Now, if you compare the eyes of a frog that's active by day to the eyes of a frog that's active by night, they're going to be very different. The eyes of the frogs at night have two different kinds of cells that are called rods, which are types of specialized cells to see under low light conditions. And what's really unique is that humans and most mammals, we only have one kind of rod that's only sensitive to one portion of the rainbow. These frogs that are active by night have two different classes of rods that are sensitive to different parts of the rainbow. And the hypothesis right now, and some of you out there can go out and test it someday, is determine whether or not they use these two different kinds of rods to see color at night. And that would be pretty cool. That would be like being able to see color in the dark, which is something we actually are not very good at unless we have streetlights to help us. Right. And even if you think you're seeing color late at night, it's because you you just get enough of the light. Exactly. You go to a moonlit night, you really don't see the color. That's right. Right. So those we've got our rods, really good for night vision. And then we have our cones, which is great because it's a C, begins with color, you know, <laughs> all fits together. So the cones are the ones for color. And we, we actually have on Ask a Biologist a nice story on seeing color. And it talks about how humans see color and wavelengths of light and actually how some animals, what they're seeing. Because a lot of people think animals, you know, dogs and cats are colorblind, and they're actually not. Correct. Which is really interesting. So your cat, for example, can see the same colors we can see, but not as strong. And so they live in what I call a pastel world, (laughs) right? But back to your frogs. Why poison dart frogs? Uh, Well, they're beautiful, and I've always been intrigued by all the different colors in this world. You know, I first intrigue was all the different fish colors in the world and whether or not you can predict variation in color in this world. And poison dart frogs are one of the most colorful. Almost every color in the rainbow pops up in a poison dart frog. And so I was very drawn to understanding this variation out there. And how you catch these guys is you put on rubber gloves and you literally chase them. Now, some of the really, really bright ones are so toxic, they're very bold, and they have this how-dare-you-even-think-about-picking-me-up attitude. And so it's pretty easy to catch them because they are really shocked you're going to grab them. (laughs) The less colorful ones 
are less toxic, it ends up. And so they're a little bit more shy and want to run away. And so you have to get crafty. And it takes a little bit of practice, but you can track them down eventually if they don't go hide underneath a log. We also use little rubber Tupperware containers to catch them so that you don't squash them. And then we poke holes so they can breathe. Okay. All right. I can see that. Mm -hmm. And then you're doing this in the nighttime? Oh, no, no. They're active by day. They're one of the rare groups of frogs that are active by day. Most frogs are active by night. And that's what's so neat, that their visual system, their eyes have changed to adapt to their their daylight activities. Are there more of these species of frogs that are on the different islands? And it probably just depends on the side of the islands. But are there more reds than yellows or more blues than greens? Or There are more reds and oranges. But the thing is, mostly on the mainland, they're all red-backed. Okay, they're red-backed and blue-legged across Nicaragua, Panama, and Costa Rica. Just off this one, what's called an archipelago, which is a small series of islands on the western side of Panama, you have this variation, this changes in the colors, and that we have up to 15 different color morphs. So over three countries, you have the one species having a red back with blue legs, and then this very small little area that spans maybe 10 miles in diameter, you have 15 different color morphs from the blues to the oranges, the greens, the yellows, and reds. And most of them are kind of the orange-red theme. Um, But that's probably because that's what they look like on the mainland. But the blue is somewhat rare, and we actually are thinking this idea that different predators can lead to different colors. Where you find the blues is where you find crabs. And crabs' visual system actually favors seeing blue as a really conspicuous color than more so than it sees red. So we think that that might be a factor. Do the different colored frogs mate with each other? Yes, they do. Females tend to prefer the colors that they grew up in, but when you bring them together in captivity, they often do mate, and when their offspring are a, a mixture of those colors. They are? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. A little bit of genetics we could get into in another show. Yes. <laughs> Do you have to travel often for your research? Yes, I get to do a lot of traveling. I travel to Panama for my poison frog research. I get to travel to Mexico to collect fish for my swordtail research. I travel to the coast of Texas to do some marine work on polarized light, and I travel to Florida to do some marine work on polarized light as well. So being a scientist, one of the best perks is getting to travel. And I've said that. Anybody who listens to this program knows that I'm a big advocate. If you want to see the world and Mm -hmm. travel, become a biologist. I agree. (laughs) Now, the other frog that you work with, I actually have the picture in front of me, so it's bright red. And there are actually three different types of them. Yes. And the way I read about it, one is very toxic. Correct. And one's kind of toxic. Mm -hmm. And one's tasty. That's correct. And the interesting thing about it is I wouldn't know one from the other right off the bat. I mean, if I did some studying, I'd be able to tell. I mean, I can understand why you would want to be a mimic, so the one that's pretending to be the really toxic one. But the one that was mimicking either the kind of toxic one and the very toxic one, it did the kind of toxic one. Yes. So the more toxic one lives in the northern part of the Amazonian basin of Ecuador, great place to visit. 
And the less toxic one lives in the southern regions. And the tasty one that mimics these two lives in both of those regions. And when it lives in the north, it looks just like the really toxic one. And when it lives in the south, it looks just like the less toxic one. I get it. And then in this area, the small geographic region, you get the two toxic species living together. And then the tasty one also overlaps in that zone, but it's in that zone where it only mimics the less toxic frog. So that's completely what I would call counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. So we did these behavior experiments where we trained chickens to learn to avoid the more toxic one, and we trained another set of chickens to learn to avoid the less toxic one. And sure enough, they learned to avoid both frogs. And then we asked the chickens, what would you do when we gave you the new colored frog? And when we asked the chickens that learned on the less toxic frog, they saw this new frog and they thought, oh, something tasty, and they went and tried to eat it. When we asked the chickens that had learned on the more toxic frog what they would do with a new colored frog, and they looked at it and they got scared and they didn't want to eat it. And so we thought, aha, this makes sense because now any of the tasty frogs, the mimic frogs that look like the less toxic frog now get 100% protection because they're protected from any predator who's familiar with the less toxic frog because it will avoid something that looks just like it. And they get protection from any predator who's familiar with the more toxic frog because they avoid new colored frogs. So it's a really clever way to avoid being eaten. It's a little complicated, but it's clever. And often biology is like that. So besides the cool, colorful, and dangerous frogs, you've been working with some beetles. And uh, we've seen some really cool beetles in some of the work we've been doing. And you've been working with these scarab beetles. And I actually describe them as almost like chrome-plated, colorful chrome-plated beetles. Uh, Absolutely. Very Mm jewel-like. And there is an article that you wrote with another scientist. And it deals with these, in particular, this one particular scarab beetle and the movie Avatar. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about (laughs) scarab beetles and Avatar. What is the connection? So the connection between these scarab beetles and Avatar is that the material they have on their carapace, the back of their, their shiny backs, is the same kind of material that is in place for filters to see 3D. What these filters do and the carapace of the beetles is they do something, and this is a very sciencey term, but it's called they phase shift the light. So polarized light is something that our eyes absorb. You know, when you go out and look on a lake or a river on a really bright sunny day or the ocean, you see what we call glare, light that's bouncing off at a certain angle up and very bright into our eyes. That is actually something called polarized light. And polarized light is simply when the vibrational plane of light, so light acts like a wave. Like water or anything else, right? That's right. And light from the sun has waves that are coming in all different types of directions. And when these waves, when the light particle hits specific materials, such as water vapor in the sky, it favors certain directions of the traveling of those waves. and. When the light hits the water surface, a lot of the vibrational plane, the the waves of the light, want to go off in a certain direction right alongside 
of the, the water surface, and that's polarized light. Now, there are a lot of animals out there that not only can their eyes absorb polarized light, they can discriminate the particular direction of polarized light. And this is something none of us humans can do, so it's really neat. In fact, a lot of insects use this to navigate through the sky because as light comes into our atmosphere, it gets polarized relative to the direction of the sun. And it's a great way to navigate. When you can't see the sun directly, you can always follow the polarized light fields. So it's really common amongst insects to have polarized sensitivity in their eyes, not common amongst we humans, but somewhat common amongst other vertebrates, such as fish and and some birds. Now, these beetles are very unique, and the fellow scientist Parrish Brady was a PhD student in the physics department over in the University of Texas, and he came to me one day, and he showed me these beetles, and he showed me these beetles with different filters. And when I looked at these beetles with a naked eye, an unaided eye, They were these beautiful chrome green that you were referring to. When I looked at these beetles with a linear polarizer, um, they were also beautiful green, metallic green. When I looked at these beetles with a right circular polarizing filter, they were green. When I looked at these beetles with a left circular polarizer filter, they turned black. Now, I threw in a couple terms there that I forgot to explain to you, and that was left and right circular polarized light. And it's not something terribly common on land, and that is even fancier form of light, and that's when the polarized vibrational plane gets slightly phase-shifted such that it starts moving in a circle, a rotation, and that rotation will either go clockwise or counterclockwise, left or right-handed kind of direction. This usually only happens with specialized surfaces like the back of these scarab beetles or underwater at the surface of the air and water interface. And so we're kind of expecting to see more of this interesting signaling or camouflage behavior using circular polarized light when we explore underwater. Right. So it's it's like secret codes. Mm-hmm. It's like having a special flashlight that no one else can see and you can turn it on and off to your friends and the teacher can't see. Today, when 3D is so popular and stereo images, one of the earlier ways of doing it was using polarized lenses on glasses. And very easily what it did is you polarized the wavelengths of the light in one direction for one eye and another direction for the other eye. Then you did the same thing for two different projectors that would be superimposed on each other. And because they were in this particular polarized wave, One eye, your left eye, can only see the same corresponding wavelength of light, and your other eye can only see the other wavelength. And so you could get that nice 3D that you wanted to have. Exactly. And a lot of people have also used uh, sunglasses Mm -hmm. that are polarized. When you get to that glare, it makes the image much clearer, and it's basically dealing with that polarization of the light. Mm -hmm. So on Ask a Biologist, before I let my scientists get out of here... (laughs) <laughs> I always have three questions, and uh, these are the real telling tales of their life. The first one is, when did you first know you wanted to be a scientist or a biologist? Was there that uh, aha moment? Well, according to my mom, she knew I was going to be a biologist before I did because I kept bringing in dead animals into her kitchen when I was four or five. 
(laughs) such as dead rabbits that I'd found or bees or, or whatever and fish when we lived on a lake. So I've always been drawn to animals. But the aha moment was when I took a class in college and the way this class worked is our beginning class, the morning class, we got to be underwater scuba diving and the entire class period meant looking at animals underwater and our teaching assistant had a slate with all the scientific names of the animals and the plants and we'd point to a really cool organism and he or she would point to the name of that organism underwater and I fell in love with the world underwater and I knew at that point I wanted to work with fish and since then I moved on to land but I began as a marine biologist. Well, they call the ocean. I have to say that's one of the more popular questions that comes to ask a biologist. (laughs) Okay, now the next one is a tougher one. And I have to take away your teaching because a lot of people that are scientists also like to teach. So I'm going to take away all your science. You can no longer be a biologist or a scientist. You're not going to be able to teach. This is your opportunity to do something you've always wanted to do. If you couldn't be a biologist or a scientist, what would you be or what would you do? Wow, I've never really thought about that. Hmm. Well, when I was younger, I worried about World War III a lot. So when I was very young, I thought I'd become a diplomat. And uh, we feared the Russians. So I was started to learn Russian in college. But uh, I think right now would be a good time for more diplomacy. So maybe I'd be a diplomat. I'm not sure I'd be very good at it. <laughs> well, if you can go out there and chase down poison dart frogs, you know, that's there, a good start, right? There you right, go. Right? Facing danger. Handling things gently. <laughs> With care. All right. And the last one is, what advice would you have for a young scientist or someone, not all people get into science early in life, someone that decides, you know, I really want to be a scientist, what advice? I would advise that you make sure you love your questions. Because in science, as in most places in academia, no one's making you get up in the morning. Your questions have to make sure you get up in the morning and get you in the lab or if it's in the field or out in your books, reading about your problem. And you have to be incredibly passionate about the question you're trying to answer. And that's my biggest advice, because if you're not motivated to find those answers, you're probably not going to find them and not do a good job of it. So you need to be motivated. So find that thing you're really curious about, Mm -hmm. and that's the one you go towards. Absolutely. Excellent. Just for a, a side note, another question that comes through with our students deals with math. Mm. How were you in math in school? I was quite good at math as a youngster and, and, and in high school. And then in college, I took the basic maths and didn't really push myself much beyond that. And that was fine. I did fine for that. However, I got farther into math and got excited by math when I went into biology as a graduate student, because then the application came to life for me. And I write my own codes now. I I write my own statistics and put them into codes. It's Once you get excited about a problem, math, and have an application for math, it's, it's right there at your fingertips, and it's incredibly powerful. I use ma- uh, math in my models all the time to make predictions about how animals are going to behave. And without math, you are very limited as a scientist. And math really isn't that hard. You could make it hard, but it's really not that difficult. And I really want to encourage all boys and girls to continue on with math, but particularly girls. For some reason, we end up taking less math um, than our boy counterparts, and that's, that's not going to help us later on. 
Well, as you said, it becomes a really fun tool to mm-hmm. learn what you are interested in. Mm-hmm. If you're curious about a particular animal or a particular ecosystem, it's really great because then you'll have a type of math. Not all math. We don't use all math. Correct, right. yeah. And so I think that's great. Okay. Well, Professor Cummings, thank you for visiting with me. Thank you so much, Dr. Biology. This is super. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Professor Molly Cummings, visiting ASU from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Texas, Austin. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.